0: We are going to be in the book of Colossians today, Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. It starts on page 983, if you're using a pew Bible this morning. We have been walking through Paul's letters. Uh, we we w- had a series through the book of Acts. We watched... Paul's journeys around on his missionary journeys, um, we, we learned about where he went and why he went there and all of those things, and then we have now jumped into these letters, just quick surveys over the letters so that we can better understand where Paul was, why he wrote it, who he wrote it to, some of the background be, be around all of these different New Testament letters that we have of Paul's. And we've been looking at them in chronological order, seeing the way that he wrote them and when he wrote them. We've looked at at Galatians and Thessalonians, both letters to the Thessalonica church. Uh, We saw the letters that that Paul wrote, or at least some of the letters, the ones we have, that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. We found the letter, we, we looked at the letter to the Romans that he wrote while he wintered in Corinth and wrote the letter to the Romans anticipating that he would get there, that he would be able to spend time there in Rome and and continue on in his journeys. That's not exactly the way it worked out for Paul, though. He did not end up being able, to, in, in freedom at least, to travel to Rome as he had hoped and on to Spain. Instead, he travels to Rome... Uh, under chains. He's been arrested, he's kept in captivity in, in Caesarea, and finally he's sent as a prisoner off to Rome and, and ends up staying in, as a prisoner in Rome for a couple of years. It's there, while he's in chains in Rome, uh, under, under Roman guard, in fact probably chained directly to a guard, uh, that he writes these prison letters or these captivity letters that we 've been looking at here for these last couple of weeks. Ephesians is probably the first letter that he writes. Colossians is the second letter here. Uh, Philemon, which we 'll talk about a little bit today and and more in coming weeks, is also written. Those three are probably written really close together. Philippians is also written we think as Paul is, is in captivity in rome he 's able to have he 's able to have visitors he 's able to have he 's under house arrest he probably has some visitors that come and spend time with him. It appears. But, but he is in chains and writes these letters, these captivity letters, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon, while he's there. These letters tend to have a little different theme than some of those ones that he wrote during his missionary journeys. Uh, those, would, those had specific issues that he was writing to those specific churches about. And this letter, even in Colossians, has some of those specific issues that he's writing specifically to the church in Colossae, about. But these letters, Paul intentionally, he, especially Ephesians, we talked about that the last couple of weeks, but even in this letter, he, he ends this letter in Colossians talking about making sure that they pass this letter on to the church in Laodicea and that they also read the letter that he sends to Laodicea. He, he, these, these letters, this Ephesians letter, this, this Colossians letter, he wants them to be passed around to churches. He wants churches to be encouraged by all of the different letters to be passed around in a bit of a circuit. And so they, they have a little different flavor than some of those early letters that we saw. There's the, the, they're, they're a little more generic in their openings and closings uh, than some of the letters that he wrote during his missionary journeys. And he, he writes them so that the church might be strengthened, so that the church might be encouraged. We especially saw that in these last couple of weeks as we looked at the letter to the church in Ephesus. Remember, Paul loved Ephesus. He had spent three years in Ephesus. Much of his ministry during those years, was he, he loved the people of Ephesus, so much so that even when he wanted to visit, as I shared earlier, as he wanted to visit with the elders of the church as he was traveling back by, he wouldn't stop directly in ephesus because he knew it would be too hard too many he had too many connections too many relations too many people would want to see him and he didn't have time for that and so he asked the elders of the church to come and meet him on this different spot in Miletus, so that he could visit with the elders of the church he loved he loved ephesus and the people in the church of ephesus And so he wrote that letter, reminding them of of who God was and how God had changed them and how God was calling them to walk humbly in the manner that they were called. He had told them that they were to walk in unity and transformation and submission for Christ's sake and to do it all with the power of the gospel, with the strength of God and his armor that strengthens them. Now we come to this letter to the church in Colossae. The Colossian letter. This letter, this letter is written to the, to the church in Colossae, probably a place, a town, that Paul had never been to. These other ones we've we've read the Ephesians and Corinthians, uh, Galatians, Thessalonians, these were all cities that Paul had been to. Even Rome, while Paul had not been to Rome yet, he had not been to the church in Rome, he knew a lot of the people. That was some of the greetings we talked about in chapter 16. He knew the people of Rome, and he he wrote to Rome, not having ever been there. But Colossae was a place that Paul probably had never been to. He didn't know the faces. He didn't know the people. That were there. This was a a small town, probably about 100 miles east of Ephesus, in a river valley. In fact, we have just a quick little map there for you to see it. It was in the river valley at one point. At one point, it was probably a fairly significant city. Uh, a, A main road had traveled right through Colossae for a while. But then the Romans came along and they built a new road about 15 miles to the north of Colossae. And so now Colossae is much like what we would consider a a Route 66 town. It had some significance at one point when the road went through it, but now it had been bypassed by all of the major travel. And so now, during this time here in the early first century, Colossae is a small and a dwindling town. It's dwindling in importance. It's dwindling in population. In fact... Probably not long after this letter is written in that first century, there's an earthquake that happens in the middle of that river valley. And Laodicea and Aeropolis, which you can kind of see there, not too far away from Colossae, they, they rebuild their cities. But Colossae, because it's been dwindling, because it's getting smaller and smaller and less and less important, they do not rebuild their city after the earthquake. And so it's not even long after this letter that they're their city is destroyed. The city of, of Colossae was, was probably most well-known for two things. One was that they, they had a purple, a rich purple dye that they created, manufactured there in Colossae that they would put into wool fabrics. They were well-known for that. They were also well-known for these large uh, rock and sediment deposits that were through the river basin there around Colosse. Uh, large deposits that, that people would see and, and look at and think that they could possibly be monsters. And so the name Colossus uh, came because they were close to the town of Colossae and they saw these Colossus monster rock sediment monsters. Um, Paul had never been there, but the church that was started in the city of Colossae Definitely has ties to Paul and his ministry. A man by the name of Epaphras, we, we even see his name show up here in, in chapter one of Colossians. Epaphras probably spent some time in Ephesus while Paul was having his ministry there during those three years. In fact, in Acts 19 and 20, we, when we learn about his ministry there in, in Ephesus, we, we hear that, there, that his ministry or the, the word that Paul was sharing was being spread all through Asia. And this is probably one of those instances. Epaphras came from Colossae. He had sat under Paul's ministry maybe for a long time while Paul was there in Ephesus and then returned back to Colossae and planted the church and began sharing the things that he had learned from Paul. And he went home and planted a church. And several years later... That church is growing, the believers are growing, they're growing in faith. Paul praises them here in the beginning of Colossians chapter 1. But somewhere, as they are growing in faith, someone has come into the church and began to share some things that are contrary to Paul's teaching. The church is now beginning, the church in Colossae is now beginning to have a few theological hiccups, more or less. And Epaphras sees this, he he knows what's happening, He, he sees what's coming down the road, and so Epaphras, whether he has some kind of business in Rome or whether he just goes specifically for this purpose, Epaphras heads all the way to Rome where Paul is and meets with Paul while Paul's under lock and key in Rome and begins to share with him the things that he sees happening in this church in Colossae. And so Paul listens to Epaphras, he hears what's going on, and he immediately then writes a letter to send to the church, to the Colossian church, to help fight the theological drift that was happening in this church, in this Colossian church. The letter to the church in Ephesus, this letter that we're looking at here to the church in Colossae, along with an additional letter, which we'll look at in the future, to a parishioner that's in the Colossian church, Philemon is his name. All three of those letters are carried by a couple of guys, Tycheus and Onesimus. We see that in Colossians chapter, chapter 4, you can see that. They send all of these letters together, and so that helps us to see probably why much of what we'll, we'll read and see in Colossians mirrors something that we saw in Ephesus, or in the, church, in the letter to the church in Ephesus, to the Ephesian letter. Ephesians and Colossians have lots of things. In fact, several phrases are almost identical in those passages. Probably because he wrote them almost maybe even back to back. And he also wrote a personal letter to a parishioner Philemon. They were all carried together and sent out and shared together. What I want to do today is just look at the first couple of chapters of Colossians of this letter um, to help us to better understand uh, what it was that Paul was writing about and what he wanted the Colossian church to understand as they began to face this theological drift that they were having in their church. Paul begins the letter, as you see in Colossians chapter 1, he begins with his customary greetings, thanking God, thanking God for what he has heard about these people that he hasn't even met yet. But he thanks God. He thanks God for the faith of those that he has heard of. And he reports that he, or or he shares that he has heard good reports about their faith and their ministry. And then he shares in chapter 1, look at verse 9 if you're walking along there. I think he gives the purpose statement of his letter, In chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. He gives us customary greetings at the very beginning. And then he says, in chapter 1, verse 9, he says, And so, from the day that we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Paul says, here's what I'm going to write about. I am praying to God. I am asking God that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will and spiritual wisdom and understanding. And, verse 10, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. I think that's what we find in these these four chapters in this letter to the Colossians. This first part, he talks about about the the, the drift that's happening in the church and, and I think gives a way to combat that. He wants them to be filled with that knowledge and, the, and spiritual wisdom and understanding. And then the second part, chapters three and four, which we'll look at next week, he talks about wanting them to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, and breaks his letter into two parts. Again, much like the book of Ephesians was or the letter to the church in Ephesus was. And so the first question we have is what is the theological drift that's happening? Why? Why is Paul praying that these Believers in Colossae would be filled with the knowledge of his will and spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why do they need knowledge and spiritual understanding? I think we first see that in chapter two. So we're going to look at them backwards today. We're going to look at chapter two first and then go back to chapter one. But in chapter two, we begin to see some of the theological drift that's happened. Paul talks about here in chapter 2. He says in chapter 2, look first in verse verse 4. Chapter 2, verse 4. He says, I say this in order that no one might delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. He goes on in in verse 8. Look at that. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. He says, what he's saying is that there are some men who have come in, there are some teachers that have come into your church, and they're, they're, they're sharing with you false things about the gospel. And he says, I don't want you to be fooled, I don't want you to be duped, into these false teachings. I don't want you to be deluded, he says. I don't want you to be taken captive by these false teachings. We don't know exactly what the teachings are. There's lots and lots of different ideas. Commentators have lots of different things that they've shared and tried to patch together from what they understand. We just have a little bit that Paul shares with us here in chapter two. We have to kind of assume some things. But it looks like there's, there's three things that, that Paul immediately comes against here in chapter 2. Uh, mostly starting in verse 16, if you want to look there. Teachings that, that have come into the church that are contrary to the gospel. You see in, in, right away in, in verse 16, he says, Therefore, don't let anyone pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are the shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Someone has come in. Someone has come in and made a connection to these new believers. For these new believers, he's, they've made some connections to, to Old Testament law. So some of the things that were happening in the Old Testament. Some of the festivals, some of the, some of the things that were happening there. the Food, drink, Sabbath. Some of those laws that they found in the Old Testament. And they've attached those to the gospel. And they said, if you are a believer, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, if you want to be a part of the church, you need to believe in Jesus, but you also need to do these things that the Jewish people have been doing for centuries. You need to follow along with the Jewish custom and the Jewish law. And we know, we already know Paul's response to that. We know from the very first letter that he wrote, when he wrote the letter to the Galatians, he says there's nothing, there's nothing that we add, there's nothing else to go with Jesus. There's not Jesus plus anything, there's no add-ons. Our salvation is found only in Jesus. It's all found in Jesus. He goes on in, in chapter 2 there in verse 18, he shares a, a, another the theological drift that's happening. He says, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism or worship of angels, going on in details about visions, puffed up without reason in his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that comes from God. Again, we don't know everything that, that falls into this category. We don't know exactly what was being taught, but we do know that it wasn't long after this period that gnosticism which we've talked about a few times gnosticism begins to spread especially throughout the church not long after this and gnosticism again is the idea is the idea that that matter is evil and only spiritual things can be good and again we've we've talked about we, we, i can certainly see where that might come from because we know we know the struggles and temptations and and sinfulness that we deal with in our body. And so there are some there were some people that that were trying to 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 pro, to protect Jesus. They were saying, "I know how sinful I am. I know the temptations that I have. I know the things that that I that I desire and want to do. I know the selfishness that I deal with in myself." And so Jesus could not be human like I am because I know how how unholy I know how unrighteous I am. And so if Jesus was a man like me, there's no way that he could be righteous. There's no way that he could be holy. There's no way that he could be perfect. And so Jesus could not have been a physical human being man like I am. And so they had to separate him from the humanity of men. And Paul says, that is not the way it is. Jesus was 100% man and... 100% God. He says He says it here. He says, he says, they're not holding fast. In verse 19, not holding fast to the head, the whole body nourished, knit together through its joints and ligaments, and grows with a growth that comes from God. He says, the physical body of Jesus is important. The physical body of Jesus is important. He also goes on there, if you continue on, in verse 20 of chapter 2, if Christ you died in the elemental spirits of the world. Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not touch, do not, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the things that all perish as they're used according to human precepts and teachings. Again, another teaching that was probably in there was that there were some kind of extra biblical. They didn't have the whole Bible at that time, but some extra Jesus regulations that that were being put on believers that were said to help keep them holy, to help keep them perfect, to help keep them in righteousness and in holiness. Again, the idea of Jesus plus something else is what their salvation is based on. And Paul says that is not the case these things have an appearance of wisdom they promote self-made religion and, and asceticism and severity of the body but they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh they have no value he says there is nothing there's nothing that can be added on to jesus it's all about jesus he is what our salvation is based in it starts and finishes in jesus it's all about jesus Paul's response to this early church and to these heresies that are being spread in the Colossian church was not a point-by-point refutation, though he does that a little bit here in chapter 2. But it's not a point-by-point. He doesn't detail their argument and give his own argument. Instead, what Paul does, and what we saw in chapter 1, which we'll look at here next, what Paul does is not point out all of the negatives of, of the heresy, but instead... What Paul does is points to the real thing. What Paul does is point to Jesus. It's much like what I'm told or what I've read is the training for a good bank teller. When they are told, when when they're trained on how to spot counterfeit bills, it's not that they're given lots and lots of counterfeits to look at and to study and to try to figure out how they're counterfeit and how they're different. Instead, the training, what I'm told at least, the training for bank tellers is that they're given lots and lots and lots of real money. They feel it. They they know exactly how it feels and what it smells like and all of the details of it. they're, They're so in tune to real money that when something counterfeit comes through, they know it right away. They can see it right away. They feel it right away. They know the difference because it's not the real thing. That's what Paul is trying to do here in this letter to the Colossian people. He wants them to know the real thing. He doesn't worry so much about the heresy. Instead, he wants them to know who Jesus is. Paul's response to this theological hiccup in the Colossae church is that he wants them to be so filled with Christ that the counterfeit philosophies can't take root inside of them. And so he says, I pray that you may be filled with all the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. I want you to know Jesus and to be filled with him. So let's look at chapter one. This is where I think he starts that idea. I already told you in verse nine, that's the theme of the whole book. I want you to be filled with knowledge of his will, spiritual wisdom, understanding. And he continues on in verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness, and he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul tells us here early on in this letter to the Colossians, he says, this is the real thing. Jesus is the real thing, and I want you to be full. I want you to be filled I want you to be filled with him. In fact, look at the way he says it. He, go back to verse 9. He says, I want you to be filled with all wisdom. I want you to be uh, with all knowledge. I want you to be filled with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. He goes on then in verse 10. He says, I want you to be filled fully pleasing to him in every good work, increasing in knowledge, being strengthened with all Power according to the glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. I want you to be filled, full, all, every, all of those words Paul uses over and over and over again in this first chapter. I want you to know Jesus. The refutation for, for. Chapter 2 in Colossians is right here. Jesus, Jesus is the way to refute this theological drift. Jesus is the full coming of God. Jesus is the way to have our sins removed. Jesus is the full triumph over Satan and sin and death. Jesus is the way. And so then he goes on into this next passage in Colossians chapter 1 passage that you have probably heard a number of times. It's a it's a great a great passage on on the importance of Christ, the preeminence of Christ, the superiority of Christ. Read it with me. He says here in chapter 1 verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things were created through him and for him he is the and before him is all things and in him all things hold together he is the head of the body the church he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent for in him All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Do you see it there? Do you see the words again, just like we saw in the first part? Look again, let's go back. Verse 15 He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things were created through him and for him. For he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body of the church. He's beginning the firstborn and the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on Earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his Christ, by the blood of his cross. Jesus is all. Jesus is everything. Paul wants the Colossians. He doesn't want to refute every single point by point of these arguments that are coming into the church. He just wants them to be full of Jesus. He wants them to see Jesus. He wants the believers to be so filled with Jesus. He is everything. He is the center. He is all. He is preeminent, he says. It's all about Jesus. And our hope, he says here in chapter 1, our hope comes because the fullness of Christ dwells in us. Continue on there in in chapter one. He says down a little bit in verse 27, he says to them, to those who have come, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is this Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's him that we proclaim. Warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may, we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's what I toil for. He says that you might know Christ in you. That's your hope of glory. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. The response that these Colossian believers need is not a detailed, a, not a detailed answer. They need Jesus, and they need to see that Jesus is everything. Jesus is the hope for the church in Colossae. He was the hope for the early church all through that region as the church of Laodicea and Aeropolis were to share in this letter as well, and Jesus is the hope for us as well. The worship team is going to come this morning, and we're going to sing a song reminding us that Jesus is the center of all things. Paul writes this letter, and he, he walks through, again, this theological drift a little bit. He, he reminds them of who Jesus is, and then, just as he did with the Ephesian letter, he says, I tell you all of this. I want you to be filled with Jesus. I want you to have all knowledge of Jesus so that you might walk in a manner Worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. Chapters 3 and 4, the second half of this letter, will walk us through some of that. Much like, again, much like the letter to the Ephesians. How we are to, to take off all of these sinful old nature things. How we are to put on this new nature. How it's to revolutionize. Are the way that we the way that we treat our family and the way that we respond to our to those that 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 work for us and, and to those who are above us, how it's to change everything about who we are because Jesus is everything. It's all about Jesus. That's the focus that Paul has in this letter to the Colossian church. So stand with me this morning as we worship as we are reminded that Jesus is the center of all things.
1: Oh Christ, be the center of our lives. Be the place we fix our eyes. Be the center of our center of the universe everything was made in you Jesus breath of every living thing man
0: The comes from Colossians chapter 3. Paul says this, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Thank you for coming this morning.